0: STORY THREE OF THE FURTHEST REACHES OF SPACE! Ed Reed, Short Sci-Fi, Volume 8 Mr. Meek, Musketeer! by Clifford D. Simak Now that he'd done it, Oliver Meek found a thing he'd done hard to explain. Under the calm, inquiring eyes of Mr. Richard Belmont, President of Lunar Exports, Inc., he stammered a little before he could get started. "'For years,' he finally said. "'I've been planning a trip. "'But Oliver,' said Belmont, "'we would give you a leave of absence. "'You'll be back. "'There's no reason to resign.' "'Oliver Meek shuffled his feet "'and looked uncomfortable, a little guilty. "'Maybe I won't be back,' he declared. "'You see, it isn't just an ordinary trip. "'It may take a long, long time. "'Something might happen.' "'I'm going out to see the solar system.' Belmont laughed lightly, "'reared back in his chair, "'matching fingertips. "'Oh, yes, one of the tours. "'Nothing dangerous about them, "'nothing at all. "'You needn't worry about that. "'I went on one a couple of years ago. "'Mighty interesting.' "'Not one of the tours, "'interrupted Meek. "'Not for me. "'I have a ship of my own.' Belmont thumped forward in his chair, "'looking almost startled. "'A ship of your own?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Oliver admitted, squirming uncomfortably. "'Over thirty years I've saved for it. "'For it and the other things I'll need. "'It's of got to be, well, an obsession, you might say.' "'I see,' said Belmont. "'You planned it?' "'Yes, sir, I planned it.' "'Which was a masterpiece of understatement. "'For Belmont could not know, and Oliver Meek Stoop-shouldered, white-haired bookkeeper could not tell of those thirty years of thrift and dreams. Thirty years of watching ships of the Void taking off from the spaceport, just outside the window where he sat, hunched over ledges and calculators. Thirty years of catching scraps of talk from the men who ran those ships. Men and ships with the alien dust of far-off planets still clinging to their skins. Ships with strange marks and scars upon them and men with strange words upon their tongues. Thirty years of reducing high adventure to cold figures. Thirty years of recording strange cargoes and stranger tales into account. Thirty years of watching through a window while rockets outbound dug molten pits into the field. Thirty years of being on the edge, the very fringe of life, but never in it. Nor could Belmont have guessed or Meek formed in words the romanticism that glowed within the middle-aged bookkeeper's heart, a thing that sometimes hurt, something earthbound that forever cried for space. For the night classes Oliver Meek had attended to learn a the theory of space navigation, and after that, more classes to gain an understanding of the motors and controls that drove the ships between the planets. Nor how he had stood before the mirror in his room, hour after hour, practicing, perfecting the art of pistol-handling, nor of the afternoons he had spent at the shooting gallery, nor of the nights he had read avidly, soaking up the law and information and color of those other worlds that seemed to beckon him. "'How old are you, Oliver?' asked Belmont. Fifty next month, sir,' Meek answered. "'I wish you were taking one of the passenger ships,' said Belmont. "'Now one of those tours aren't so bad. They're comfortable, and Meek shook his head, and there was a stubborn glint in the weak blue eyes behind the thick-lensed glasses. "'No tour for me, sir. I'm going to some of those places the tours never take you. I've missed a lot in these thirty years. I've waited a long time, and now I'm going out and see the things I've dreamed about.' Oliver Meek pushed open the swing doors of the silver moon, and stepped timidly inside. Just through the door he stopped and stared, for the place hit him squarely in the face the acrid smoke of a Nusian leaf, the high-pitched laughter of the Martian dancing girls, the soft whirr of wheels, the click of balls as they bounced around the spinning wheels, the clatter of poker chips, the odor of strange liquors, the chirping and growling of a dozen tongues, the strange exotic music of Ganymede. Meek blinked through his heavy lenses, moved forward cautiously. In the far corner of the place stood a table occupied by one man, an old grizzled veteran of the asteroids with his muzzle in a flagon of cheap beer. Meek sidled toward the table, drew out a chair. ''Do you mind if I sit here?'' he asked, and old stiffy Grant choked on a mouthful of beer in his amazement. ''Go ahead, stranger,'' he finally croaked. ''I don't give a dang. I don't own the joint.'' Meek sat down on the edge of the chair. His eyes swept the room. He smelled the smoke, the raw liquor, the sweat-stained clothing of the men the cheap perfumery of the dancing girls. He shifted his gun belt so the two energy pistols hung more easily and cautiously slid further back upon the chair. So this was Asteroid City on Juno, the place he'd read about, the place the pulp paper writers used as background for their more lurid tales. This was the place where guns flamed and men were found dead in the streets and a girl or a game of chance or just one spoken word could start a fight. The tours didn't include places such as this, they took one to the nice, civilized places. Towns like Gustapán on Mars, and Radium City on Venus, and out to Satellite City on Ganymede. Civilized, polished places. Places hardly different than New York or Chicago or Denver back home. But this was different. Here one could sense something that made the blood run faster, made a thrill scamper up one's spine. You knew ain't you?" asked Stiffy. Meek jumped, then recovered his composure. Yes? he said. Yes, I am. I always wanted to see this place. I read about it. Ever read about an asteroid, Prowler? asked Stiffy. I believe I have somewhere in a magazine section. A crazy story. It ain't crazy, protested Stiffy. I saw one of them this afternoon while here on Juneau. None of these dad-blamed fools will believe me. Furtively, Meek studied the man opposite him. He didn't seem to be such a bad fellow. Almost like any other human being. A little rough, maybe, but a good fellow just the same. Say, he suggested impulsively, maybe you'd have a drink with me. You're damn tootin', agreed Stiffy. I never turn down no drinks. You order it, said Meek. Stiffy bawled across the room. Hey, Joe, bring us a couple of snorts. What kind of animal was this you were speaking of? Asked Meek. Asteroid prowler, said Stiffy. Most of these hoodlums don't think there is one, but I know different. I saw him this afternoon, and he was the dad blameless thing I ever laid my hands on. He boiled right out from behind a rock and started coming after me. I let him have one in the face, but didn't even nick him. Full power, too. When that happened, I didn't waste no more time. I took it on the lamb, got to my ship, and got out of there. What did he look like? Stiffy leaned across the table and wagged a forefinger solemnly. Mister, you ain't believe me when I tell you, but it's the truth, sir, aren't me. He had a beak and eyes. Danged if them eyes weren't something. They were reaching out and trying to grab you. Not really reaching you, you know, but there was something in them to try to talk to you. Big as plates and they shimmered like there was fire inside of them. Those dod wotted rock blasters have laughed at me when I told them about it. Insinuated I held the truth lightly, they did. Laughed their full heads off. It's pretty near as big as an house, that animal, and it's got a body like a barrel. It's got a long neck and a little head with big teeth got a tail too, and it's kind of set close to the ground. You see I was out looking for the lost mine. Lost mine? Sure ain't you ever heard of the lost mine? Stiffy blew bare in amazement. Oliver Meek shook his head, feeling that probably he was the victim of tales reserved for the greenest of the tender fruit, not knowing what he could do about it if he were. Stiffy settled more solidly in his chair. The lost mine story, he declared, has been going around for years. Seems a couple of fellas found it a few years after the first dome was built. They came in and told about it, stocked up with grub and went out. They never did come back. He leaned across the table. You know what I think, he demanded, gustily. No, said Meek. What do you think? A prowler got them, Stiffy said triumphantly. How could there be a lost mine? asked Meek. Asteroid City is one of the first mining domes built out here. "'There was no prospecting done until about that time.' "'Stiffy shook his head, waggling his beard. "'How should I know?' he defended himself. "'Maybe some early space traveller set down here. "'Dog of mine never got back to Earth to tell about it.' "'But Juno is only one hundred and eighteen miles in diameter,' Meek argued. "'If there'd been a mine, someone would have found it.' "'Stiffy snorted. "'That's all you know about it, stranger. "'Only one hundred and eighteen miles, sure.' but one hundred and eighteen miles the worst damned countryman ever set a boot on, mostly up and down. The drinks came, and the bartender slapping them down on the table before them. Meek gasped first at their price, then choked on the drink itself. But he smuggled at the choke manfully and asked, What kind of stuff is this? "Bocker," replied Stiffy. Good old Martian bocker. Puts air on your chest. He gulped his drink with gusto, blew noisily through his whiskers, "'Eyed Meek disapprovingly. "'Don't you like it?' he demanded. "'Sure,' lied Meek. "'Sure I like it.' He shut his eyes and poured the liquor into his mouth, gulped fiercely and desperately, almost strangling. Said Stiffy, "'Tell you what let's do. Let's get into a game.' Meek opened his mouth to accept the invitation, then closed it, Caution stealing over him. After all, he didn't know much about this place. Maybe he'd better go a little easy, at least at first. He shook his head. No, I'm not very good at cards. Just a few games of penny ante now and then. Stiffy looked his disbelief. Penny ante, he said, then guffawed as if he sensed humour in what Meek had said. "Say you're good," he roared. "Don't suppose you can use them lightning throws of yours either." Some admitted Meek, practiced in front of a looking glass a little. He wondered why Stiffy rolled in his chair with mirth, until tears ran down into his whiskers. Stiffy held a full house, aces with kings, and his eyes had the look of a cat stalking a saucerful of cream. There were only two in the game, Stiffy and an oily gentleman called Luke. As the stakes mounted and the game grew hotter, the others at the table dropped out. Standing behind Stiffy, Oliver Meek watched in awe, scarcely breathing. Here was life, the kind of life one would never have dreamed of back in the little cubbyhole, with its calculators and dusty books at Lunar Exports, Inc. In the space of an hour, he had seen more money pass across the table than he had ever owned in all his life. Pots that climbed and pyramided. Fortunes gambled on the flip of a single card. But there was something else, too, something wrong about the dealing. He couldn't figure quite what it was, but he had read an article about how gamblers dealt the cards when they didn't aim to give the other fellow quite an even break. And there had been something about Luke's dealing, something that he had read about in that article. Across the table, Luke grimaced. I'll have to call you, he announced. I'm afraid you're too strong for me. Stiffy slapped down his hand triumphantly. That's that, dang you, he exulted. That kind of cards I've been waiting for all night. He reached out a gnarled hand to rake in the coins, but Luke stopped him with a gesture. Sorry, he said. He flipped the cards down slowly, one at a time. First a tray, then a four, and then three more fours. Stiffy gulped, reached for the bottle. But even as he did, Oliver Meek reached out and placed his hand upon the money on the table, fingers widespread. He'd remembered what he had read in that article. "'Just a minute, gentlemen,' he said. "'I've remembered something.' Silence thudded in the room. Meek looked across the table straight into the eyes of Luke. Luke said, "'You better explain yourself, mister.' Meek suddenly was flustered. "'Why, maybe I acted too hastily. It really was nothing. I just noticed something about the deal.' Luke jerked erect, kicking his chair away with a single motion of rising. The crowd suddenly surged away out of the line of fire. The bartender ducked behind the bar. Stiffy flung himself with a howl out of his chair, skidded along the floor. Meek, suddenly straightening from the table, saw Luke's hand streaking for the gun at his belt, and in a split second he realized that here he faced a situation that demanded action. He didn't think about those days of practice in front of the mirror. He didn't call upon a single iota of the gun law he had read in hundreds of books. His mind for a bare instant was almost a blank, but he acted as if by instinct. His hands moved like driving pistons, snapped the twin guns from their holsters, heaved them clear of leather, grabbed them in mid-air. He saw Luke's gun muzzle swinging up, tilted down the muzzle of his own left gun, pressed the activator. There was a screeching hiss— A streak of blue that crackled in the air, and the gun that Luke held in his hand was suddenly red-hot. But Meek wasn't watching Luke. His eyes were for the crowd, and even as he pressed the firing button, he saw a hand pick a bottle off the bar, lift it to throw. The gun in his right hand shrieked, and the bottle smashed into a million pieces. The liquor turned to steam. Slowly Meek backed away, his tread almost cat-like his weak blue eyes like cold ice behind the thick lens spectacles, his hunched shoulders still hunched, his lean jaw like a steel trap. He felt the wall at his back and stopped. Out in the room before him, no one stirred. Luke stood like a statue, gripping his right hand, badly burned by the smoking gun that lay at his feet. Luke's face was a mask of hatred. The rest of them simply stared, stared at this outlander, a man who wore clothing such as the asteroid belt had never seen before. A man who looked as if he might be a clerk, or even a retired farmer out on a holiday. A man with glasses and hunched shoulders and a skin that had never known the touch of sun in space. And yet a man who had given Luke Blaine a head start for his gun, had beaten him to the draw, had burned the gun out of his hand. Oliver Meek heard himself speaking, but he couldn't believe it was himself. It was as if some other person, taking command of his tongue, was forcing it to speak. He hardly recognised his voice, for it was hard and brittle and sounded far away. It was saying, does anyone else want to argue with me? It was immediately apparent no one did. Chapter Two Oliver Meek tried to explain it carefully, but it was hard when people are so insistent. Hard too to collect his thoughts so early in the day. He sat on the edge of the bed, white hair tuzzled, his nightshirt wrinkled, his bony legs sticking out beneath it. But I'm not a gunfighter, he declared. I'm just on a holiday. I never shot a man before in all my life. I can't imagine what came over me. The Reverend Harold Brown brushed his argument aside. Don't you see, sir? He insisted. What you can do for us? These hoodlums will respect you. You can clean up the town for us. Blackie, Hoffman and his mob run the place. They make decent government and decent living impossible. They levy protection tribute on every businessman. They rob and cheat the miners and prospectors who come here. They maintain vice-conditions.' "'All you have to do,' said Andrew Smith brightly, "'is run Blackie and his gang out of town.' "'But,' protested Meek, "'you don't understand. Five years ago,' Reverend Brown went on, disregarding him, "'I would have hesitated to pit force against force. "'It is not my way nor the way of the church. "'But for five years I've tried to bring the gospel to this place. "'I've worked for better conditions, "'and each year I see them steadily getting worse. "'This could be a swell place,' "'enthused Smith. "'If we could get rid of the undesirables, "'fine opportunities, capital will come in, "'decent people could settle. "'We could have some civic improvements, "'maybe a rotary club.' "'Meek wiggled his toes despairingly. "'You would earn the eternal gratitude of Asteroid City,' "'urged the Reverend Brown. "'We've tried it before, but it never worked.' "'You always killed a man,' Smith explained. "'We got scared or they bought him off.' "'We never had a man like you before.' "'The Reverend Brown declared. "'Luke Blaine is a notorious gunman. "'No one ever before has been able to beat him to—' "'There must be some mistake,' insisted Meek. "'I'm just a bookkeeper. "'I don't know a thing.' "'We'd swear you in as Marshal,' said Smith. "'The office is vacant now. "'Has been for three months or more. "'We can't find anyone to take it. "'And I'm not staying long,' protested Meek. I'm leaving pretty soon. I just want to try to get a look at the asteroid, Prowler, and scout around to see if I can't find some old rocks I read about once. The two visitors stared open-mouthed at him. Meek brightened. You've heard about those old rocks, maybe? Some funny inscriptions on them. Fellow who found them thought they hadn't been made recently, probably just before Earthmen first came here. But no one can read them. Maybe some other race from somewhere far away it won't take you long, pleaded Smith. We've got warrants for all of them. All you've got to do is serve them. Look, said Meek in desperation, you've got me wrong. Uh, it must have been an accident shooting that gun out of Mr. Blaine's hand. Meek felt dull anger stirring within him. What right did these people have of insisting that he helped them with their troubles? What did they think he was, a desperado or a space runner, another gangster, just because he'd been lucky at the Silver Moon. Ah gosh!' he declared flatly. "'I just won't do it!' "'They looked pained, rose reluctantly. "'I suppose you shouldn't have expected that you would,' "'said the Reverend Brown bitingly. "'The silver moon was quiet. "'The bartender was languidly wiping the top of the bar. "'A Venusian boy was as languidly sweeping out. "'The dancing girls were gone. "'The music was silent. "'Stiffy and Oliver Meek were among the few customers. "'Stiffy gulped a drink.' and blew fiercely through his whiskers. Oliver, he said, you sure are a ring-tailed bearcat with and guns of yours? I wonder, would you tell me how you do it? Okay, Mr. Grant, said Mink. I wish you'd quit talking about what I did. It was just an accident, anyhow. What I'm mainly interested in is this asteroid prowler you were telling me about. Is there any chance I might find him if I went out and looked? Stiffy choked, almost purple with astonishment. Good gravy, he said. I want to go out and tangle with the prowler, not tangle with him," Meek declared. "Just look at him, Mister Stiffy warned. The best way to look at that thing is with a telescope, a good, powerful telescope." The swinging door swung open, and a man walked in. The newcomer walked directly toward the table occupied by Stiffy and Meek. He halted beside it, black beard jutting fiercely, eyes bleakly cold. "I'm Blackie Hoffman," he said. "I suppose you're a Meek." He disregarded Stiffy. Meek stood up and held out his hand. Glad to know you, Mr. Hoffman, he said. Blackie took the proffered hand, in some surprise. Seems I should know you, Meek, but I don't. Should have heard of you at some time or other. Men like you will get talked about. Meek shook his head. I don't think you ever have. I never did anything to get talked about. Sit down, said Hoffman, and it sounded like a command. I've got to get going. Stiffy piped, already halfway to the door. Hoffman poured out a drink and shoved the bottle at Meek. Meek gritted his teeth and poured a short one. No use beating around the bush, said Blackie. We may as well get down to cases. I guess we understand one another. Oliver Meek didn't know what the other meant, but he had to say something. I guess we do, he agreed. All right then, said Hoffman. I've built up a sweet little racket here, and I don't like fellows butting in. Meek essayed to down his liquor, succeeded, gasped for breath. Well, I could use a man like you, said Hoffman. Luke tells me you're handy with the blasters. I practice sometimes, Meek admitted. A smile twitched Hoffman's bearded lips. We have the town just where we want it. The officials can't do a thing, scared to. Marshals always eat rock or skip town. Maybe you'd like to throw in with us. Not much to do, easy pickings. I'm sorry, said Meek. "'But I can't do that.' "'Listen, Meek,' warned Hoffman. "'You're either with us or you ain't. "'We don't like chiselers here. "'We know what to do with guys who try to muscle in. "'I don't know who you are or where you come from, "'but I'm telling you this straight. "'If you don't come in, all right. "'But if you stick around after tonight, "'I can't promise you protection.' "'Meek was silent, nulling the threat. "'You mean,' he finally asked, "'that you're ordering me out if I don't join your gang.' Hartman nodded. That big boy is just exactly what I mean. Slow anger and resentment ate at Meek. Who was this Hoffman to order him out of Asteroid City? This was a free solar system, wasn't it? No wonder the Reverend Brown was jittery. No wonder the decent people wanted a clean-up. Meek's anger mounted, a cold, deadly anger that shook him like a frigid hand. An anger that almost frightened him, for very seldom in his life had he been really angry. He rose slowly from the table, hitched his gun-belt to a comfortable position. The town's been without the marshal for a long time, hasn't it? he asked. Hoffman's laugh boomed out. You bet it has. it's going to stay that way. The last one took it on the lamb, the one before that got killed, the one before that sort of disappeared. Meek spoke slowly, weak eyes burning. Horrible condition, he said. Something's got to be done about it. The streets were deserted. Quiet. A deadly quiet that lurked and hovered, waiting for something to happen. Oliver Meek polished his marshal's star with his coat-sleeve, glanced up at the dome, stars glittered, the light distorted by the heavy quartz, stars in a dead black sky. Bathed in the weak starlight, the mighty walls of the canyon reared above the dome. A canyon, the only sort of place where a city could rise on one of the planetoids, for the walls protected the dome against the deadly barrage of whizzing debris that continually shrieked down from space. Those mighty cragged mountains and dizzy cliffs were pocked with the blows dealt through long eons by that hail of armor-piercing projectiles. Meek returned his gaze to the street, saw the lights of the silver moon. Nervously, he felt of the papers in his inside pocket, warrants for the arrest of John Hoffman for murder. Luke Blaine for murder, Jim Smithers for reckless shooting, Jake Loomis for assault and battery, Robert Blake for robbery. and suddenly Oliver Meek was afraid, for death waited him, he knew, inside the swinging doors of the Silver Moon, a death preluded by this quiet street. Almost as if he were awaking from a dream, he found questions filling his brain. What was he doing here? Why had he gotten himself into a jam like this? What difference did it make to him what happened to Asteroid City? It had been anger that had made him do it, that unaccountable anger which had flared when Hotman told him to get out. After all, what difference would a few days make? He was going to leave anyhow. He had seen about all there was to see in Asteroid City. He wanted to see the prowler and the stones with the strange inscriptions on them. But they were sights he could get along without. If he turned around and walked the other way, he could reach his spaceship in just a few minutes. There was fuel enough to take him to Ganymede. No one would know until he was already gone, and after he was gone— what would he care what anybody thought? He stood irresolutely, arguing with himself. Then he shook his head, resumed his march toward the silver moon. A figure stepped from a dark doorway. Meek saw the threatening gleam of steel. His hands streaked toward his gun butts, but something pudded him in the back and he froze, fingers touching metal. All right, Marshal, said a mocking voice. He just turned around and walked the other way. He felt his guns lifted from their holsters, and he turned around and walked. Footsteps crunched beside him and behind him, but otherwise he walked in silence. "'Where are you taking me?' he asked, his voice just a trifle, shaky. One of the men laughed. "'Just on a little trip, Marshal, out to take a look at Juno. It's a right pretty sight at night.' Juno wasn't pretty. For the most part, there was little of it one could see. The stars shed little light, and the depressions were in shadow, while the cragged mountaintops seemed like shimmering mirages in the ghostly starlight. A ship lay on a plateau between a needle-like range and a deep-shadowed valley. Now, Marshal, said one of the men, you stay right here. You'll see the sun come up over that mountain back there. Interesting. Dawn on Juno is something to remember. Meek started forward, but the other waved him back with his pistol. You're leaving me here, shrieked Meek. Why, sure, the man said. You wanted to see the solar system, didn't you? They backed away from him, guns in hand. Frozen in terror, he watched them enter the ship, saw the port close. An instant later, the ship roared away, the backwash of its tubes buffeting meek to the ground. An instant later, the ship roared away, the backwash of its tubes buffeting meek to the ground. He struggled to his feet, watching the blasting tubes until they were out of sight. Clumsily, he stepped forward and then stooped. There was no place to go, nothing to do. Loneliness and fear swept over him in terrible waves of anguish. Fear that dwarfed any emotion he had ever felt. Fear of the ghostly shimmer of the peaks. Fear of the shadow-blackened valley. Fear of space and the mad, cold intensity of unwinking stars. He fought for a grip on himself. It was fear such as this that drove men mad in space. He'd read about that, heard about it. Fear of the loneliness and the terrible depths of space. Fear of the indifference of endless miles of void. Fear of the unknown that always lurked just at elbow distance. Make, he told himself, you should have stayed at home. Dawn came shortly, but no such dawn as one would see on earth. Just a gradual dimming of the stars. A gradual lifting of the blacker darkness as a larger star the sun swung above the peaks. The stars still shone, but a grey light filtered over the landscape. Made the mountains solid things instead of ghostly shapes. Jagged peaks loomed on one side of the plateau, fearsome depths on the other. A meteor thudded somewhere to his right and Meek shuddered. There was no sound of the impact, but he could feel the vibrations of the blow as the whizzing mass struck the cliffs. But it was foolish to be afraid of Meteor, as he told himself. He had greater and more immediate worries. There was less than eight hours of air left in the tanks of his spacesuit. He had no idea where he was although he knew that many miles of rugged, fearsome country stretched between him and Asteroid City. The spacesuit carried no food and no water, but that was a minor moment, he realized, for his air would give out long before he felt the pangs of thirst or hunger. He sat down on a massive boulder and tried to think. There wasn't much to think about. Everywhere, his thoughts met black walls. The situation, he told himself, was hopeless. If only he hadn't come to Asteroid City in the first place. Oh, having come, if he'd only minded his business, this never would have happened. If he hadn't been so anxious to show off what he knew about card-dealing tricks. If only he hadn't agreed to be sworn in as marshal. If he'd swallowed his pride and left when Hoffman told him to. He brushed away such thoughts as futile, took stock of his surroundings. The cliff on the right-hand side was undercut, hanging several hundred feet off level ground. Ponderously, he heaved himself off the boulder. Wandered aimlessly up the wider tongue of plateau. The undercut he saw grew deeper, forming a deep cleft, as if someone had farred out the mountainside. Heavy shadow was clung within it. Suddenly he stopped, riveted to the ground, scarcely daring to breathe. Something was moving in the deep shadow of the undercut, something that seemed to glint faintly with reflected light. The thing lurched forward, and in the fleeting instant before he turned and ran, Alvamique had an impression of a bower-like body a long neck, a cruel mouth, monstrous eyes that glowed with hidden fires. There was no speculation in Oliver Meek's mind. From the description given him by Stiffy, from the very terror of the thing, he knew the being shambling toward him was the asteroid Prowler. With a shriek of pure fear, Meek turned and fled, and behind him came the Prowler, its head swaying on the end of its whip-like neck. Meek's legs worked like pistons, his breath gasping in his throat his body soaring through space as he covered long distances at each leap under the influence of lesser gravity. Thunderous blasts hammered at the earphones in his helmet, and as he ran he craned his head skyward. Shooting down toward the plateau, forward rockets breaking, was a small spaceship. Hope rose within him, and he glanced back over his shoulder. Hope died instantly. The prowler was gaining on him, gaining fast. Suddenly his legs gave out, simply folded up, worn out with the punishment they'd taken. He threw up his arms to shield his helmet plate and sobbed in panic. The asteroid Prowler would get him now. Shore was shooting. Just at the minute rescue came, the Prowler would get him. But the Prowler didn't get him. Nothing happened at all. Surprised, he sat up and spun around, crouching. The ship had landed, almost to the edge of the plateau, and a man was tumbling out of the port. The Prowler had changed his course, was galloping toward the ship. The man from the ship ran in leaping bounds, a pistol in one gloved hand, and his yelp of terror rang in Meek's earphones. Run, dang you, run! That dad-blamed prowler will be after us any minute now! Stiffy! yelled Meek. Stiffy! You came out to get me! Stiffy landed beside him, hauled him to his feet. Dang right I came out to get you, he panted. I thought them mudlums would be up to some dirty tricks you stuck around and watched. He jerked at Meek's arm. Come on, Oliver, we've got to get along. But Meek jerked his arm away. Look what he's doing, he shouted. Just look at him. The Prowler seemed to be bent on systematic destruction of the spaceship. His jaws were ripping at the steel plating, ripping at it and tearing it away, peeling it off the frame as one might peel an orange. Hey, howled Stiffy. You can't do that. Get out of there, you dang. The Prowler turned to look at him, a heavy power cable in his mouth. You'll be electrocuted, yelped he Stiffy. Danged if it won't serve you right. But far from being electrocuted, the Prowler seemed to be enjoying himself. He sucked at the power cable, and his eyes glowed blissfully. Stiffy flourished his pistol. "'Get away!' he yelled. "'Get away! What blister you dang hide!' Almost playfully, the Prowler minced away from the ship, feared dancing. "'It did it!' said Mink. "'Did what?' Stiffy scowled bewilderedly. "'Go away from that ship!' Just like you told him to, Stiffy snorted. Don't ever kid yourself he did it, because I told him to. He couldn't even hear me, probably. Living out here like this, you wouldn't have anything to hear with. Probably he's just trying to decide which one of us will catch first. Better be ready to kick you up some dust. The prowler trotted toward them, head bobbing up and down. Get going, Stiffy yelled at Meek, and brought up his pistol. A blue shaft of light, whipped out, smacked the prowler in the head. But the prowler didn't even falter in his stride the energy charge seemed to have no power at all. It didn't even spatter. It looked as if the blue pencil of raging death was boring straight into the spread of forehead between the monstrous eyes. Run, you dang fool! Stiffy screeched at Meek. I can't hold him off! But Meek didn't run. Instead, he sprang straight into the prowler's path, arm upraised. Stop! he yelled. To be concluded.